This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, we sit down with specialist S&C coach, Dr. Steve Thompson. He discusses his dual role at Sheffield Hallam University, whilst also working for national governing bodies, his practical implementation of velocity-based training and how this benefits athletes, as well as the importance of soft skills when coaching to try and get athletes to engage with this practice. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Good. So, Steve, appreciate you spending a bit of your afternoon with me. How are things in your world? Are you all good? Pleasure, Michael. Yeah, all good. Thank you. Yeah, really good. Um, as I was saying before, we we jumped on start of start of semester, so things are a little bit hectic with with students coming back. But but yeah, everything's great. Yeah, I did make the joke that I enjoy seeing the new uni students all trying to use the gyms at the start of the year. And as soon as Freshers' Week comes around, that soon goes out the window and they realise they prefer vodka Red Bulls and doing uh, <laughs> reps and sets, etc. But um, for people that maybe haven't come across you, don't know who you are, don't know your, your work, etc. Do you want to give us a bit of an overview of, of who you are and what you do from a day-to-day basis? Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm a, I'm a senior lecturer based at Sheffield Hallam University and I course lead the MSc in strength and conditioning coaching and, and have done, I think we're going into our fifth year now. Um, I'm sort of an, an early career researcher at the same time. So I passed my PhD in um, load velocity profiling back in July last year um, and, and sort of managed to publish along the way. So I, I technically class as, a, as a, an ECR at the moment. So I, I try to do as much research as I can with the time that I have. Um, and then also uh, work as a kind of a, a physical performance coach consultant across a number of different sports and organisations, including domestic and international football um, and uh, GB diving as well. Um, so lots of sort of spinning plates in, in my day to day, but lots of excitement, lots of challenge, lots of variation um, and, and certainly can't complain with with the the amount of things I get to do on a, on a regular basis. It's, um, it's really cool. Yeah. And we will go into the, to the velocity based training thing. Cause I think that the application of, of it is going to be a really insightful piece for, for everyone listening. So as a starting point, and we'll try and ease myself and everyone else in, into this, what does velocity based training mean? Um, and what are, I guess, some of the positive and negative impacts of the training itself? Yeah, cool. So um, VBT is um, is a term that gets sort of branded about quite a lot, and uh, I think can get can become convoluted and can be um, made too complicated uh, often. When realistically, VBT all it means is utilizing the measurement of velocity to inform some form of training or some part of um, our role as SNC coaches or sports scientists. So. Whenever you measure velocity, be that movement velocity, barbell velocity, velocity of throwing, that technically comes under the banner of of VBT. Um, And I think really what it is, is kind of an overarching strategy, an overarching um, system that that can be used to support traditional methods that we were all very familiar with um, and, and kind of 
under that that umbrella of, of VBT comes a number of different applications. So we could use it for, for sort of general feedback. Um, we could use it for to to inform and, and and help with programming and planning. We could use it for sort of profiling diagnostics. Um, we could use it for sort of readiness to train monitoring, volume control, fatigue management. There's lots of things we can do with VBT because it's very flexible. Um, and that's one of the reasons I really like it is because it can be very flexible and it can fit into many different environments and complement things that are going on within those environments really, really well. It's objective. So the data that you get from it is objective, which I think, you know, when if we delve into kind of the realms of autoregulation, which, which I'm, I'm sure a lot of people will be familiar with, um, there's lots of methods out there and, and, and a number of those methods are often subjective, which I think, again, have their benefits, but often requires the individual using them to have a, a vast amount of training history and experience to really gauge into how they're feeling and how a set feels or how many reps they've got left in the tank, so to speak. Whereas VBT will give you data, objective data straight away, and we can use that to sort of map to um, a number of different aspects within within physical performance really awesome so i think this for a starting point can you i guess give a, a definition of velocity um, and velocity-based training what that actually looks like because i think there'll be some people listening that might not understand what that that actually means in a in a technical standpoint and then if you could provide that then looking at particular um, techniques or particular um movement patterns that you're able to assess what type of um data are you pulling from those assessment points okay i mean yeah really simply velocity is just speed but speed with a, a direction so um velocity we're interested in the direction of movement speed we're not um so there there is no no bigger difference than that um and and, and essentially what we use velocity or how we use velocity-based training might be to, to quantify the, the speed or the velocity at which somebody moves through a, a given exercise. So let's take the example of a back squat. We might want to uh, measure their velocity of the upward part of the back squat across a number of different loads to figure out their physical qualities, essentially, how well they move, how quickly they can move different loads in comparison to somebody else or in comparison to themselves over time. Um, and it can help us paint a bit of a picture about what, what's happening within their physiology. Because um, uh, one of the benefits of using something like velocity is it, it directly links to a number of different kind of physiological mechanisms that underpin how we, how we move, how we produce force, how we, how we perform different tasks and different actions. So there's a real strong link there to, to, to what we sometimes call neuromuscular function. So how well our neural system, so our central nervous system and our peripheral nervous system, and then our muscles work and how they work in unison. And velocity is, is very close to that. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way of managing and, and kind of um, understanding what's going on physiologically. Um, so from a, from a definition, perspective it's really just speed we're just measuring speed um and from 
kind of how we might use it and some of the movements and the data that we try and draw out of that. I suppose there's three different types of velocities that we're really interested in. There's mean velocity, which would be the velocity across um, the portion of the lift that we're interested in. So let's take that back squat example or deadlift or bench press. The, the upward part of that movement, which is termed the concentric phase, we would look at the average velocity across that full, that full range of motion, essentially. Um, another, another option might be peak velocity, where we're looking at an instantaneous maximal amount of velocity magnitude within, um, within that given phase or within that given range of motion that, we, that I've, I've just mentioned. Um, and then the other one is, a, is, a, is called mean propulsive velocity, which to, to try and not go down a sort of a rabbit hole of, of the biomechanics, um, essentially when we move, a, 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 when we perform an action like a back squat, um, we have a period of where the bar is accelerating, which might be from the bottom to three quarters of the way up. And then we have a, a, a very sort of smaller period where the bar is actually decelerating because if it weren't to decelerate, we'd end up leaving and leaving the floor and jumping. Um, so mean propulsive velocity basically ignores that part of the top, that decelerated phase and just focuses on the bar accelerating. And you know, research suggests that the, that from a reliability perspective, all three are, are pretty good and are, and, are, and are quite interchangeable, really. Um, some practitioners and researchers suggest that mean velocity is more suitable to your traditional strength type exercises: bench press, deadlift, back squat, um, split squats, etc. And peak velocity might be might be better for more explosive Olympic type movements: cleans, jerks, jumps throws etc um but from a research perspective they're very very similar so from a i guess looking at it from a top level athlete perspective why is it important to gather this data um and why and is it able to identify those that uh, have higher athletic thresholds are more capable to jump or sprint quicker or yeah what what type of information or talent id perspectives can you get from this type of information yeah good question um i think from a from a a, a, a profiling testing perspective it can absolutely give you information around how how well somebody is physically developed. So, you know, we could we could look at traditional markers of strength, like one repetition maximums, for example, the amount you can lift for one for one repetition. That's all well and good. That provides us with a, a top-end force production, a top-end max strength. However, whether that fully trickles down into typical performance within different sports perhaps apart from your, your traditional strength sports like powerlifting, strongman, weightlifting to, to some degree. Um, I think the translation of that maximal strength to other uh, more dynamic sports, team sports, court sports, whatever it might be, um, I think that translation is lost a little bit. So, so one of the things you can do with velocity is you can start to look at how quickly somebody moves across a whole range of loads that's kind of termed a load velocity profile. And with that, you can then compare against other athletes. You can see, well, what speed can they lift X amount of weight at 100 kilograms, for example? What speed can they lift that at versus somebody else? Um, but then you can also use that information 
not necessarily as a as a like a benchmarking option, but but more as a um, a means to quantify intensity, quantify effort, and inform programming and prescription. So one of the things we can do with velocity is we can kind of figure out how fatigued somebody is on a given day based on the velocity that they, they perform at a particular weight at. Um, and then we can make adjustments to that training session based on that information that we've pulled out of, you know, of, of that, um, that particular assessment at the start of a session. And we can then quantify and, and provide pretty accurate methods to adjust that load. So to, to try and give you some context or put it into an example, let's say we have a, an individual who, um, going back to the back squat example, can back squat 100 kilograms. And that 100 kilograms represents 85% of their maximal amount that they can lift. So 85% 1RM. Let's say that they lift that, typically lift that at 0.5 meters per second. That gives us something that gives us a number of different bits of information that we can then build a program around. However, let's take football as an example. They've got double sessions in days, they've got lots of travel, they've got potentially poor nutritional practices and, and bad sleep habits and, and all sorts of confounding variables that might impact on their ability to, to perform a gym session or at least perform a gym session to maximal effort and intent. So what we can do then at the start of a session is we can we can figure out where they are for that load. And if they're lifting that load slower, so if they're lifting that, that 85%, 100 kilograms at 0.4 meters per second, we know that they're pretty fatigued. And actually what we wanna do is take some load off the bar. So we might wanna take that down to 90 kilograms to hope that that velocity then goes back, to, back up to 0.5, which then matches that 85% 1RM that we're interested in. And the reason we're interested in is because that 85% 1RM directly links to physiological adaptations that, we, that we've, we've targeted for this particular training block, for example. Um, okay. and that's just one example of how we could use it. There's, there's many other, other ways in which we could use VBT as well. That's just so, one. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So that, that what, I think you've loosely gone on to what my next question was going to be there. So obviously it seems like you're... I guess prioritizing the velocity or the speed that they're doing the movements maybe over the the level of weight that's being put on um and what point what what's the rationale behind that um I wouldn't say that you are prioritizing it but I think what you're doing is it's it's adding another layer of information to help figure out how that person feels on that given day when they're stood right in front of you in the gym or wherever it might be um, so I think what it does is it allows us to be cleverer in the decisions that we make as coaches for the athletes that we're working with. So it allows us to say to us, you know, it, instead of, instead of kind of the, the, the traditional method of person comes in the gym and say, and you kind of have a conversation, how are you feeling today? Well, I slept pretty rubbish. Um, you think you can, you're all right to do the session. Yeah, let's give it a go. And you kind of muddle through that session then. Some exercises might go well, others might not go so well. Um, what you're doing with VBT in this example, in this instance, is you're, you're, you're asking the, 
the physiology of that person, how it feels, as opposed to the, the person themselves. You're saying, how quickly can you move this bar? And if you can move it where it should be, happy days. There's probably minimal amounts of fatigue. Let's press on with the session as we planned. However, if it's slower for whatever reason, we can sort of more confidently say, okay, something's going on here. For some reason, they're fatigued. A, let's have a conversation and figure out why they're, they're fatigued. Was it a hard training session? Was it poor sleep? Are they feeling a bit beaten up? Are they stressed from stuff outside of, of, of their sport and of their daily daily training? It could be a number of different things. It sparks a conversation, but then it allows us to say, okay, the data is saying that we need to drop. Um, where are we from, you know, how far away from, are we from, from competition? How does that person feel? And we're almost now triangulating a number of, number of pieces of data to, to make that decision on whether we do need to modify the session or not. So I think it just adds confidence in the decisions that we perhaps would make anyway, if that makes sense. Okay, so I'm just chucking out an idea as you're talking here. Do you think you'd be able to use it as an assessment tool when someone comes in, you know, straight away or they've just had breakfast and they come in to then from a technical coaching perspective to say, right, these are the distances we're going after today, or this is the level of load we're able to go after today. Because obviously what you're essentially able to do is rather than the wellness questionnaires that people fill out or anything like that, or in addition to, don't get told to fill out, in addition to, <laughs> you might be in a position where you can look at your group and go, right, after yesterday's session or after the, the you know, Tuesday through Thursday's block, this is how they're feeling so we need to adapt our sessions accordingly doing X, Y, Z. Do you think it could be a, a really nice almost assessment feedback piece to what we're then going to practice from a technical perspective as well? I think I think, um, I think it could inf help to inform, again, some of those decisions. I, I, I would have been confident in saying, you know, if your, your velocity of X exercise at X load dropped by 10%, we need to knock off, you know, Y amount of distance. I don't think it would be that insular, um, but I think what it would do is it would certainly give you more information than just a readiness questionnaire. And as, a, as, a, as an MDT or as a technical team, alongside the physical performance coach, perhaps the physio is involved there as well, you could then say, right, this person or this player or athlete is down by 20% in terms of their, their readiness markers. I think we need to do something. What's the session look like? Where could we afford to pull that player back or, or whatever? Um, and where do we need to keep them in? And it becomes a bit of a um, bargaining tool or a, a, a conversation then between different aspects of that MDT to sort of say, right, here's the best way to protect, to protect the player based on the information. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's no, it's no different to kind of, um, doing test, taking jumps at the start of a day or the start of a session, which is a lot more common practice looking at jump height. If the jump height drops, we have to have a conversation about it. The difference for me between jump height and velocity is, as I mentioned before, velocity has a direct link to physiology and mechanical output that we can produce as an individual. Whereas jump height can be, we can cheat in essentially, you know, play, play, certainly within football, players are very clever. 
and they know how to get things a little bit better um, because that's what they that's what they do. They're born to compete. They're born to win. So they figure out these little strategies. Um, and, and I think you can also impact jump height by simply changing the depth that you drop within that jump um, based on kind of impulse momentum equations and stuff that we, we don't necessarily need to go into now. But I think velocity takes away some of that um, that gray area, that cloudiness around some of the other physical readiness sort of markers that we can collect. Not saying I've ever done it, but just lift your knees up slightly, right? So you get a bigger, bigger height. <laughs> yeah, <absolutely. laughs> I, know, I know exactly what you're referencing there. One thing you mentioned earlier, you mentioned around, I guess, profiling. It allows you to profile groups. I think with the Rugby World Cup on at the moment, I think that's a perfect example of profiling. What, um, yeah, I guess, how does this tool allow you to profile individuals and how would you maybe generically look to then begin to group people? Um, is it by what they're capable of? Is it by increments of, of how they're improving? Yeah, so what, what does that profiling piece look like? Yeah, so um, a load velocity profile is is no different really to a traditional one repetition maximum test which is basically an incremental test going up to the max that an individual can lift for, for one repetition in a given exercise. The only real difference, if we, if we make it as simple as possible, is that for every repetition of every incremental load, we measure velocity, whether that's mean, whether that's peak, whether that's mean propulsive, we take that information. And then all we do is essentially we plot, so we, we kind of plot a scatter graph where load is our x-axis, velocity is our y-axis, and what we expect to see is a, a kind of an inverse line from um, heavy loads down to, to light, sorry, light loads down to heavy loads and fast velocities down to slow velocities. So real simply, as the load on the bar increases, the velocity at which we can move that bar has to decrease, again, heavily linked to the physiology of the way in which we produce force. Um, so if we know that what we can do is we can, pick, we can pick a number of different loads across that spectrum of zero to a hundred percent of an individual's one repetition maximum, and we can measure the velocity and we can plot a line through it, which gives us a predictive equation. We can then use that equation to predict any kind of load along that spectrum or any kind of velocity along that spectrum based on what that individual is, is being asked to do on a, on a given day. So that's how we would use the profile practically. Um, and that's how we would kind of measure it. Again, there's a number of different nuances to, to, that go into that, which we can delve into if you want, or we can kind of leave it a bit more broad stroke. Um, and then in terms of kind of like the, I suppose the benchmarking, that's where it becomes the grouping, that's where it may become becomes a little bit more difficult and challenging. It is definitely possible. So we can we could essentially look at, let's say, take five different individuals, all with very similar max strength, so very similar one RMs, um, but maybe have very different profiles in terms of kind of where that line sits on that graph. And actually, what we can do then is we can say, okay we can kind of almost plot like a, a mean line in the middle and say anyone that's that's above it, at sort of the velocity end maybe needs to work on more strength. Anybody that's above it on the strength 
and maybe needs to work on more speed. And we can kind of then prioritize different training methods based on where they sit uh, in comparison to other, other individuals within the squad or normative data in the research. We can kind of loosely use it to inform where our priorities need to be from a training perspective. Um, but I think more importantly, it's, it's we're using it to individualize the amount of load and the, the, the weight that they're lifting on a regular basis. I think that's where it gets its biggest sort of bang for your buck from a, from a auto-regulation, load manipulation type, type aspect. And if you were looking to increase the velocity, so if you are looking to try and get it, you know, you're getting it at 0.2 and you want to get it to a 0.5 or, or whatever that is, how would you go about practically doing that? So what type of um, techniques are you putting in place or what type of exercise are you doing to try and allow the um, athlete to see an increase in velocity over time? So, yeah, so that one of the drawbacks of, of VBT and certainly low velocity profiling is that every exercise and every individual has, a, has their own unique profile. So you, if you and I did the same exercise, our profiles would be different. Likewise, if you did two different exercises, those profiles would be different. So, you, so by virtue, you get, it becomes quite difficult to profile everything. Um, and the reason I say that is because ultimately, if we want to improve, increase someone's velocity of movement, then we probably need to do lots of different training methods along that spectrum. So if we talk about get, making somebody faster, for example, um, so transference from gym to field, ignoring all of the technical side of sprinting and of, of running fast, which is obviously extremely, extremely important, um, from a purely force versus velocity physical perspective, we really need to do some, some pretty heavy stuff and some pretty light explosive stuff. And essentially what we're trying to do, if you picture that, that profile, that inverse line, we're just trying to shift it up and to the right. And if we do that over time, then hopefully that then transfers into our ability to become faster within whatever aspect of that sport we deem necessary. Um, but again, we have all the other elements and factors that we need to, to put in place there around how we train on field, how, what, what our sprint mechanics and our sprint technique look like, um, usable force, usable rate of force development, and all those kinds of things that, that we can't just deal with in the gym. But if we boiled it down to it, then I think that's what we'd be targeting in terms of making somebody move faster generally, um, and then looking at moving those that, that profile up and to the right based on a given exercise um, and, 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 and based on develop developing them physically from a strength perspective and what would you say obviously you've mentioned kind of the caliber of athletes that you were working with earlier do yeah. you see those that are olympians world-class top of level are able to have higher levels of velocity in the type of things that you're testing or is that too generic to say no, I think I think you can. I think it, it's it all boils down to the sport that they that they um, that they perform. So you know, if you're looking at very fast twitch type athletes, sprinters, jumpers, divers to to a certain degree as well, um, 
if you were to there, if you were to compare, let's say, a an unloaded or a just a simple barbell jump from a peak velocity perspective, we probably want them to be upwards of 3.5, 4 meters per second. Um, compare that then to say uh, a strength athlete, a power lifter, they're not going to be able to perform that to that degree. However, if we take it to take both athletes or type of athlete to the other side of the of the of the profile of the spectrum, we'd expect that power lifter to be able to lift very very heavy loads at let's say if we're talking a squat around 0.2 0.25 meters per second. That sprinter, that diver, that twitchy person might still be able to perform at that um, at that velocity, but would be much less load, much less weight that they're lifting. So you can you do you can benchmark and you can see kind of these general zones and and kind of um, thresholds that that perhaps different types of athletes will reach. But I think again, the beauty of VBT is it is, it is very individualized. I suppose the beauty and the curse really it's very individualized so it means you can you can be really um really honed in on on developing someone and getting everything optimized but then you know if you want to do some some real simple comparisons it becomes maybe a little bit more tricky um well you, yeah you can definitely do it you can definitely get those benchmarks and those um those those aims for, for athletes to 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 to, to aim for um, and use them to differentiate between, I suppose, higher level versus lower level athletes within a given sport or population. And you, you obviously mentioned the individualized piece and uh, there's something that everyone's big on now, you know, trying to be catered to a specific athlete. Can you just describe how it's made you a better practitioner going through this? Because obviously you mentioned at the start that you have a wide range of, of roles and responsibilities from student athletes to top level nationals to foundation phase football players to whatever that looks like for you as a practitioner I'd imagine it's quite exciting to be able to almost have a variety of guinea pigs to work with and see how you can implement it or, or what it looks like and, and whatnot so yeah just describe how it's made you uh, better in this space or develop a greater understanding is there any particular stories that stand out to you um yeah good question I think from a um from a more general perspective, I think what it's done, and certainly certainly throughout my PhD, it, it allowed me to major in an area and become pretty well versed in it. And you know, I, I wouldn't, well, I don't know, maybe I would say it's my specialism. I'm not trying to sound you know big headed or anything, but it's something I've studied for for a number of years. So I am I am well versed in it. Um, so I think what it's done is it's it's made me appreciate the possibilities that let's say technology can bring to, to, to my everyday role, made me appreciate the importance of research, for example, and how that can link to my, my everyday role as a coach or sort of part of my everyday role as a coach. Um, and I suppose has made me appreciate maybe where the differences lie in terms of what I need to do for that, diff, that d demographic. So, you know, take the, take the club football that I work in and, and, and kind of, your foundation phases, they don't really need to be doing VBT. They need to learn how to move better. They need to learn how they move as an individual, how they move in time and space. They need to learn about good habits and training and, and how it all links together and makes them better performers. Whereas, you know, we go up to kind of 
top end of your development phase or the, or the, the professional development phase, that's when it can be, and, and obviously first team as well, that's when it can become really, really effective, certainly within, within a sport such as football where they're, they're pushed to the limits on a daily basis and therefore being in tune to that is really important and it can help it can help spark conversations and it can help you almost justify some of the decisions that you want to make, whether it's, no, no, we're going to push you on today because this is what the data is telling us, or actually we need to pull you back a bit today because this is what the data is telling us. So it, I think from that perspective, it's made me, it's made me kind of um, reevaluate my approach to coaching in a sense um, and, and, and how I approach different, different, groups and different individuals and who I really push the button on with VBT and who I say, actually, it's either not suited to you or it perhaps will just complicate things more than I needed to complicate things at this moment in time. Um, I think the, the one, I think the one story I've got in terms of VBT and, and its impact on not necessarily me as a coach, but as a, as a, as a, an eye opener for a particular athlete that I was working with, um, we were, this was many years ago, working with, with the divers. Um, we had a, 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 a female athlete who was strong, but didn't understand lifting strong and heavy. She didn't understand how strong she was, essentially. And we challenged her to, um, to put what she thought was on the bar. She needed to put on the bar for a given amount of reps. I think it was like six or eight or something like that. And then I essentially set up the, the the piece of technology to tell her to stop when there was a 20% cutoff in velocity. So when her velocity of the first rep dropped by 20%, which if the loading was right, if she understood how strong she was, she'd have got to that six or eight repetitions. 25 repetitions later, she was still going. And eventually I stopped it and I sort of said, well, what does that tell you? She said, I can lift heavier. And I said, go on then what do you think needs to go on and she sort of said well let's put 2.5 on each side and I said no no you need to be putting five seven ten on each side to get you where you need to be in terms of that velocity loss um and, and that was just a real small kind of anecdote around the, the 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 powerfulness and the impact that something like this and technology can have on certainly athletes that maybe have shorter training histories and, and, and sort of training ages um, and open their eyes to what they are actually capable of. Yeah. And I think it, like, like in, in everything, you've got that risk reward piece, right. And people figuring out, well, if I go too heavy, what's the risk of it? And actually there's little rewards. So I'm not going to try. Whereas if you've got this data going, no, put more on, like literally put more on, you're more than capable like the machine will tell us when you need to stop. And I'm telling you, put more on. I think it's a really nice bit that, you know, people do listen to data and objective hard facts rather than opinions because they, they look at it and go, okay, that, that seems to make sense. So it's obviously a really use, useful tool to allow people to do that. Yeah. And, and going back to what you said a, a little bit ago in terms of, you know, prioritizing speed over, over weight, Whilst I said that, that you don't necessarily do that, actually, in, in terms of in terms of driving intent and, and creating like a 
a really healthy environment within a gym setting that perhaps that environment hasn't been there before. So going off my own experiences and, and perhaps you might, might be, um, might agree with this certainly maybe not so much now, but back in the day, strength work and gym work within professional football wasn't, it certainly wasn't the most favorite thing for them. They, they wanted to be in and out. They didn't like the gym. I think it's changing now. I think cultures have changed within academies and within first teams. That means players are now, they're hungry to get stronger and, and faster and all those kinds of things. But I think one of the things that VBT can do is it can create a really healthy environment that allows players to chase the speed instead of chasing the load. So, and we know that, you know, if we, if we boil down kind of what strength is, strength is basically force. And if we take a real simple um, equation, which is Newton's second law of force equals mass times acceleration, we know that if we move a given mass, so whatever load is on the bar, if we move that faster, that equation, so force has increased, which means strength has increased. So actually what we can do to players is we can say, all right, if you don't want to lift 80 kilograms today, you want to lift 60, that's fine, but lift it as fast as you possibly can and lift it faster than that person, that player, that player, and let's create a little bit of a leaderboard and let's see who can lift the fastest. And I've seen that kind of firsthand change the environment within a gym, certainly within those sports where gym has not always been the most favored place. Um, I think it, it, it gives a different focus. Players want to be fast, but they don't necessarily link being strong to being fast. So if you can encourage them to be fast within the gym, it, I found it, it, it creates a lot more buy-in than perhaps the, the traditional methods that we've, we've, we've tried and failed in the past. I also think it's, it's another metric to try and be competitive with, right? Like If you look at a, a rugby side, if you've got a prop and it's going to only ever be done on weight, pretty sure I know who I'm going to back on who's going to be able to move the most weight whereas all of a sudden if you're chucking in a, a scrum half or a fullback but saying to him right we're going to focus on speed now that might be something that they're going to be able to compete or beat the props with and all of a sudden you could set up a team dynamic where you've got each team's got one scrum half one prop one whatever you're asking them to give these things a go the cumulative score out of everyone is the winning group and they get their lunch give uh, you know hand delivered to them or something like that all of a sudden there's another metric which allows you to to get buy-in which is ultimately what you want from your technical sessions but obviously your strength sessions as well yeah that's a great idea i'm definitely going to steal that i'm definitely going to use that maybe even use the lunch idea as well um, Listen, I'd love to say that that was mine. I, I luckily I was on the winning team, but we had that as part of a Y team. Uh -huh. the, the losing group had to get their stuff delivered, so we saw people, you know, go and delivering them with a little towel around the arm and all that type of stuff. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it can what it can do is it can almost level the playing field in terms of, you know, the strong versus the the not so strong individuals in any kind of gym environment, and it, and you and it can help you. Um, you know, as I mentioned, create that level of, of, of competitiveness that player, players and athletes typically thrive off because they wouldn't be in sport if they didn't. If they weren't competitive people, they wouldn't be playing sport. They wouldn't be performing at the highest level. So it can create just a different dynamic and a different environment um, and take away from perhaps some of the monotony that we we can 
that can often be created within a, within a gym space um, and make it a little bit more dynamic and a bit more enjoyable. And obviously, you know, SNC evolves, it seems like every six months to a new, new idea or new premise or updated equipment or whatever that might be. Where do you see this evolving to what, what, from a, I guess, a practical implementation perspective, where do you see this heading over the next year, three years, 10 years? Um, yeah, I think technology is the biggest thing, as is with most, uh, you know, evolution conversations, it always boils down to technology and kind of how that can change the way we do things. Um, so I think potentially AI will come have a bigger impact on the way in which we use the technology, collect the data, analyze the data, feed the data back. Everything might become just that little bit more automated. Uh, I think smartphones are developing and smart devices are developing exponentially. So they're only going to get better. So I think you'll see bigger investment, not just within VBT, but within any kind of sports science, SNC related equipment technology. I think you'll see bigger investment into kind of into the smart device area. Um, and, and I think from a, from a practical perspective and applied perspective, really it's up to, to us as researchers and practitioners to figure out where it can go, figure out what, you know, there's, there's not enough research in the area. There's not enough research um, in kind of some of the nuanced areas of VBT, like feedback, like, um, you know, impact of interventions along long periods of time. Um, the, the differences between different methods of, of um, auto-regulation, so VBT versus repetitions in reserve versus rate and perceived exertion versus other methods. Um, I think as a, uh, as a researcher in this area, that's where I'd like to see it develop and, and hopefully try and inform practice more and, and, and help coaches and practitioners that are maybe thinking, well, I want to do some VBT, but I don't really know how to do it. I don't know where to start just trying to translate some of that information, I think as well to, to practitioners and help them get going. That's certainly a passion of mine is trying to, trying to take my research and my understanding from a technical and a, and a physiological and a, and a biomechanical perspective and, and translate it into an environment that, that needs that translation and say, right, these are the ways you can do it. Here's how it fits into your environment and into your systems. Here's what I recommend you try. Here's what I recommend the technology you buy with the budget you've got um, and try and provide that little bit of guidance around how we can best utilize it and, and get the most out of it because it, it, it is it is a very, very good complementary strategy to things that we're already doing. AI taking over the world. I know <laughs> it's being used for everything, but listen, I'm conscious of time. So one one last question for me, which is if I was to speak to any of the students that you teach or any of the players that you work with, how would you hope they described you in three words and why? Wow. Um, I'd say compassionate. I'd say informed and approachable, maybe. Yeah, I think I think from my perspective, those are the the softer skills of being certainly being an S and C coach, I, I really find important. I think one of the things I tell my students all the time, you can you can write the best program in the world, but if you can't deliver it, 
it's not worth the paper it's written on. So I think there's there's definitely a lot to be being able to to be those three things in terms of how you develop as a coach and and work with athletes and stuff. I'd say the SNC world's come a long way from the old military style standing in your face. If you don't do it, you got another 20 press ups. So, but no, listen, Steve, really appreciate your time. I think a fascinating insight into, into this world and hopefully a little bit of an introduction for people that maybe haven't come across it before and an idea of how they can implement it into a program and, uh, one for player improvement, two for player care, and just get an understanding of how this could become a larger part of a program. So yeah, really appreciate your time. My pleasure, Michael. Thank you very much for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.